Well, remain standing for just a moment, and let me have you turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 1. We're actually going to just read one verse this morning, and we're not even going to get to that one. I'll explain that in just a moment, but let us... Let us hear uh, this first verse of this gospel. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon our time, Lord, as we, as we look into the beginning matters of this book. We pray for your blessing we pray that you would help us to, to be given an excitement about what we will find in its pages, Lord, and we pray that you would bless us uh, even through this time, we ask in Christ's name, amen. And you can be seated. Well, this morning, we are going to begin a new study, a verse-by-verse journey through the gospel according to Mark. And this morning, uh, as I always like to do when we're getting ready to begin or when we're beginning a new book, I want to take uh, some time this morning and before we even get into the text to give you a little background on the book, to give you a sort of first look at this book that we're going to be going through A lot of questions come to mind with with really any book that we should think about when in our personal study or in a preaching series that we, before we embark on the study, there are questions to ask. Who wrote the book? Why did they write the book? When did they write the book? What are the issues uh, that are being uh, talked about? Why, um, Why are things said the way they are said? A lot of What are the themes? A lot of things to answer. Of course, we can't answer all of them in one message, but we'll just uh, answer a couple of of important ones here. There's really three things that we're going to talk about this morning, three questions regarding Mark's gospel that will help us, I think, get a, a good start as we begin next week, then, Lord willing, working through that first verse and the ones that follow. Three questions. What is Mark's gospel? Who is Mark? And third, what is Mark saying? So quickly, uh, or briefly, the question, first of all, is what is Mark's gospel? Now the book here, this book that we're starting, the gospel according to Mark, or Mark's gospel, or simply Mark as we'll refer to it, stands in a exclusive club, or is a member of an exclusive club in the canon of Scripture, and itself stands in a a unique place. That, That club that it is a part of is that it is a gospel. One, of course, of four gospels in the New Testament, along with Matthew and Luke and John's, each of which give us divinely inspired records of the birth life, ministry, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Almighty God Himself who took on a human nature and came and lived among us as one of us to proclaim the kingdom of God to us, to come to those uh, 
who were lost in their sin and to preach to them forgiveness and the means of receiving eternal life. He who was born under the law and came to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons and adoption to receive eternal life. The Gospels, which when you talk, look at different genres in the, the Bible, you've got uh, historical narratives and you've got teaching, uh, you've got the, the letters that are written in the New Testament. The Gospels are a unique sort of, sort of piece of literature. They're biographic, but they're not really biographies. And they are historic, certainly, but they are not simply histories. Each of these four Gospels focus on different aspects of Jesus' life. They each focus on different events. They will each select, each of the authors select different events to record, and they record them in their own way uh, based on the purpose of the individual author, based on the audience of the individual author. Those vary. Each author writes from a different standpoint to a slightly different audience and with, as I say, slightly different emphases in their book. Matthew writes clearly from a Jewish perspective to a a Jewish audience. He's very uh, concerned to show that everything that happened in Jesus' life is fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, things that that Jewish people reading uh, his record would be very familiar with and would understand and would see as important. Uh, Luke, the only Gentile to write a gospel, is the most detailed. He writes, as he tells us at the beginning of his book, uh, to someone named Theophilus, and he sets down to give a, a very detailed record of Jesus' life, and he does so, and he, as you know, goes on in his second volume, the book of Acts, to give us a history of the early church. John's gospel, it's the most different uh, from the others. The first three are referred to as synoptic gospels. Uh, John's is different. John's isn't included in that. He focuses on the deity of Christ, And he writes with a very specific purpose. He gives it to us at the end of the book. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. But each is different. Uh, For example, two of the Gospels don't even record the birth of Jesus. And one of those, the Gospel of John that I just mentioned, devotes almost half of its 21 chapters to events that, are, that take place in the last week of Jesus' life. Mark's gospel, even among those, is unique. Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four gospels. It was the first one that was written. That was not always understood this way, but better and more recent uh, research into this has demonstrated that Mark's gospel was actually the first of the gospels written. And that Matthew and Luke used the the gospel of Mark as a source, as one of their sources, for their own gospels. Now, that's all fine and, and good, as they say. But there's another question that is pretty important as we begin to look at at Mark's gospel here. 
And that is, who is Mark? And that's the second thing we want to look at. You know, most people come to Matthew's gospel, most Christians, most people who are reading their Bible, come to Matthew's gospel, and they know generally something about Matthew. Uh, They know that he was one of the 12 apostles. We know that he was also known as Levi. We know that he was a, a former tax collector whom Jesus called and saved and used to write, as I mentioned, that, that most uh, Old Testament heavy and that, that most Jewish of the four Gospels. And most people know something about John, the author of his Gospel. John, the, the brother of James, those sons of thunder. A man that, that despite having that name along with his brother was a man who was so humble, who was so reliant upon Christ and so, uh, so much recognizing who Christ was and, and who himself was that he never names himself in the gospel. He never speaks of what John does, but he simply calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. We know that John also wrote four other books in the New Testament. So we know something about uh, Matthew. We know something about John. And perhaps less so, but Luke's also familiar to us as the the historian, as the companion of the Apostle Paul. As I said, Luke's gospel is sort of book one of a two-volume inspired history, along with the book of Acts. He's often referred to as the beloved physician. Uh, due to his knowledge and details that he gives concerning uh, medical types of information and things like that. So people know something about those, but probably least of all about Mark. Don't know too much about this author of the earliest gospel, this man, Mark. The New Testament doesn't say too much about him. It doesn't give us anything approaching a complete biography or a a personal history of Mark. So if we want to learn about Mark, we need to do a little detective work, uh, both within the pages of Scripture and cautiously, of course, looking outside of Scripture to some of the the extra-biblical writings of the first century and beyond that that make reference and give us some, some good information on who Mark was. Who was he? What is his connection to to Jesus and to the apostles? And how is it that he came to write one of the 27 books that make up the New Testament and one of just four uh, that make up what we call the Gospels, that inspire, those inspired records of the life and the ministry of Jesus that are so important to us? Well, I want to take a few moments and, and kind of let us know a little bit about Mark that we, that we know. There's much that we don't know about him. There are some that we can make reasonable, uh, educated guesses about, and some things of which we can be relatively sure about Mark. So if you're unfamiliar with Mark, uh, sit back and, and listen as we learn a little bit about him. Uh, he was not, as I mentioned, one of the apostles, but he, uh, a young man, as we will see, was well acquainted with not one of the the apostles, but two. And he was well acquainted with the ministry of Jesus, uh, present uh, for uh, one of the critical, at least one of the critical uh, points in Jesus' ministry. We do know that Mark was from a pretty well-to-do family. 
We know that because the Bible tells us that his mother, Mary, another Mary, um, that she was a disciple of Jesus and that she not only owned a large, nice home, but that she made it available to the church on at least one occasion that we know for sure, perhaps others. Keep, well, you can keep your finger there in Mark. As I said, we won't be looking at that first verse this morning, but turn over to the book of Acts and to chapter 12, and we'll see a little bit of what we know about uh, Mark's mother, particularly on this use to which she put her house. Acts chapter 12. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas, of course, we're early in the ministry of the New Testament church. Paul and Barnabas have come, well, they've come down from Antioch as far as north to south, but they've come up to Jerusalem because you always go up to Jerusalem because of the elevation. But they've come to Jerusalem in order to bring an offering from the church in Antioch to the Jerusalem church because of a famine that had taken place. That's in Acts 11 that talks about that. And when we come to Acts 12, we find Peter, the Apostle Peter, in prison. He's been arrested by Herod. Shortly after Herod killed James, another of Jesus' disciples, and the scripture says that when he saw that that pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter. And his plan apparently was to do the same thing to Peter that he had done with James. But he has Peter in prison. And the very night before uh, Peter was to be uh, processed, killed, Uh, Peter is miraculously and dramatically rescued by an angel. His his shackles fall off, the doors are opened, and an angel uh, ushers him out of of the prison. And when the rescue is complete, we read there in verse 11 of chapter 12, that Peter says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And then we pick up the story in verse 12. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now in that little episode that is... Oh, mildly comedic that they've been praying for Peter and when he shows up, the servant girl is so excited that she runs away and leaves him in the street. Probably not a safe place for Peter to be after uh, having just escaped from prison. Uh, But then it also shows their weakness of faith um, in that they've been praying and when God answers it, they don't believe it. Have that ever happened to you? that you've been praying for something and God answers it and you attribute it to something else. Um, Anyway, we learn a few things here in verse 12 concerning Mary particularly, and that's our focus here. Mary's situation, Mary's family, uh, and John's, uh, Mark's um, 
Mark's situation. In fact, we learn that Mark's real name is John. So we have another John and we have another Mary to, to kind of have to keep straight. But he also, like many people, also had a Greek name by which he is known. Uh, and that's Mark. John was his Jewish name. Mark is his, his Greek name. And he's known uh, throughout the, the scripture when it speaks of him sometimes as uh, John, who is also called Mark, or as John Mark, or, or simply as Mark. His mother, Mary, as mentioned, um, his father's never mentioned. We don't have any idea what, uh, what the situation was with his father, if he had died, uh, what had happened. But his mother, Mary, was quite wealthy. She owned a large home there in the city of Jerusalem, large enough that this prayer group could meet there. And notice that verse 12 says that there were many uh, who were gathered there, a large number gathered together. And in the narrative that follows that we just read, we are also told that this house has a a gateway or a a gatehouse and a gate. This is a nice place. Um, She also has servants. Obviously, uh, more than one, there's one out at the gatehouse. Uh, There would be others inside serving. But there's this one out at this gatehouse, this girl named Rhoda, who, as we saw in her excitement to tell the others, leaves Peter standing there at the gate. So Mary is obviously well-to-do, not only rich, but also very generous, also very hospitable, and obviously a member of the fledgling church there in uh, Jerusalem. She is willing to make her home available for uh, this meeting of the church, probably several meetings of the church. It's it's likely uh, that the church regularly met there. They met there often enough that Peter, when he was out of prison, knew where he needed to go to be with the, with the rest of the Christians. And they are there at this prayer meeting, particularly here this time, praying for Peter's release. And as I mentioned, it's for this home that Peter makes a, a beeline once he's out of prison. Apparently it's known to Peter, and like I said, probably used for the gathering of the church there on a regular basis. So we know that. And we know that for sure. And though this is the only time that we are told explicitly that the church gathers at Mark's mother's house, it has been speculated. Now, this is speculation. Um, It's by no means certain. Uh, It's a logical, perhaps, speculation that Mary's house in Jerusalem, large enough to host many people, that that Mary's house was also the house in which the disciples gathered at the beginning of the book of Acts, when, again, a a large number of them were gathered together. Again, they were praying, and that that while they were praying, they were choosing a successor to Judas Iscariot. It's in Acts chapter 1. Again, a large gathering in an upper room of this house, uh, meeting together, the church meeting together there. Uh, As well... Perhaps, again, thinking of this house and the way that she gives use of it, it's possible as well that perhaps this is the same house where Jesus had gathered earlier with his disciples both to eat the Last Supper and the First Lord's Supper and where he met with them twice after his resurrection. Think of the two times, one with with Thomas not there and the next time with Thomas there. So it's possible 
that this was a house that we see in Scripture uh, several times, but we know at least once here in Acts chapter 12. And, we, and because of that record alone, we know about Mark's mother, we know about his home, and at least to the point that we know anything about him at all, we know this. We do know that he had one other relative, apart from his mother, that is important, that the Bible tells us about. At the end of, book, of the book of Colossians, Mark is identified as the cousin of Barnabas. You know Barnabas. Barnabas, the, that son of encouragement um, in the Jerusalem church who, among other things, uh, brings the, the former persecutor of the church, recently saved, the man Saul of Tarsus, and brings him to the disciples and convinces them, that, or convinces them to accept him since they were understandably skeptical of, of this one who had persecuted the church to death, now coming and saying that he has been converted and is now a part of that church. Saul came along and brought Paul to, or Barnabas brought Paul along to the disciples and sort of vouched for him. But Barnabas, that Barnabas, is Mark's cousin, which may help explain one of the most well-known episodes involving John Mark, the author of this gospel that we're looking at. In Acts there, shortly after this episode that we just read about, uh, after Peter's escape from prison and after um, the death of Herod, Paul and Barnabas, having given this uh, contribution to the church in Jerusalem, they return uh, up north to Antioch. And if you look there at the end of verse 12, um, not verse 12, um, the last verse of chapter 12, yes, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And when then in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas... Uh, There in chapter 13, they are set apart by the Holy Spirit to a specific task that they are given, and then they are set set apart by the church for this special work, which we come to know as Paul's first missionary journey. The two, as they go to to plan that work and to, to set off to that work, they decide to take with them this young man named Mark to help them probably as a kind of advance man uh, to, to help with certain aspects of the work, uh, perhaps preparing places for them to stay and, and th- that type of thing. Acts 13.45 tells us that they had John to assist them, and so he assists them in various ways. Now, it's probable that Paul first met Mark while they were in Jerusalem bringing this offering. And it is reasonable to think that, as Mary's son, that Mark was in Jerusalem at this time and that Paul and older older cousin Barnabas may have spent a good deal of time with this young man while they were there uh, in Jerusalem. So they, the three, set off. However, as you may know, not long into this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas with Mark as their helper, something happens. 
The group sets off. They cross over to the island of Cyprus. They preach through the the island of Cyprus. They preach in the synagogues of that entire island. They come to Paphos, which is on the southwest shore of that island. And from there, uh, remember having smitten with blindness the false prophet uh, Bar-Jesus who opposed them and unsuccessfully tried to keep uh, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul there, from accepting the gospel. After all of that work, they leave uh, Cyprus and they set out to Asia Minor. And it's when they arrive in Pamphylia, at the northern shore of the Mediterranean Sea there, that this unexpected event takes place. And if you're still there in Acts 12, just look over at Acts 13 and look at... um, Verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's all we're told. Why did, why did John leave? We're not told. Um, why did he just sort of up and leave? Paul says, desert them and return home. One commentator has offered a few possibilities. Perhaps he was displeased with the rising prominence of Paul over his cousin, maybe. Uh, Perhaps he was just homesick. Uh, He's a a, a young man, possibly in his 20s. Uh, Is it anxiety for his mother's safety? He's gone off and left her. Perhaps he came to the conclusion that that was not a good idea and so wants to go back home to take care of her. Uh, Perhaps he has misgivings about this new offer of salvation that is being given to Jew and Gentile alike on the same basis. Uh, Perhaps, and this may be the most likely, it was because of the difficulty of the task that lay ahead in a strange land. The, the rigors of that mountainous region that they were uh, coming into, the terrors and the dangers, 2 Corinthians 11.26 talks about uh, that. But we're just not told, so we don't know for sure. But something happened, and something that caused Mark to abandon the work, to abandon his companions, and to return home to Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that, that this act on the part of Mark produces a rift between Paul and Barnabas. When they are done with their first missionary journey, they return to Antioch, which was Paul's sort of home base. Uh, And and then after also the Council of Jerusalem that happens there, as the two prepare, the two men, Paul and Barnabas, prepare then to leave on their second missionary journey to go back out and to continue and to revisit the churches, Luke records in Acts 15.37 this, He says, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. That's Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So apparently Barnabas thought that whatever Mark had done to leave was a a justified reason or that it was not worth sort of 
excluding him from the ongoing work. Whereas Paul most certainly did not think that. He thought that Mark, whatever he had done, was enough to exclude him. And they end up, Paul and Barnabas, end up splitting up. Mark sails off to Cyprus with his cousin Barnabas, and that is the last that we hear about either of them in the book of Acts. But it's not the last that we hear about them, or at least of, about John Mark, in the New Testament. During Paul's later, these, this is years later, uh, ten, ten years plus later, during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, that's the one that's described at the very end of the book of Acts, um, more than ten years, as I say, after they're falling out, Paul and, and Mark's, the imprisonment during which Paul wrote the prison epistles, that's the, the letters to the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians and to Philemon. Paul, in writing there, bears witness to the, the great reconciling power of the gospel in his own life in regard to Mark. Because in his closing greetings, he includes Mark among, quote, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And he says that they have been a comfort to me. And then he likewise mentions Mark in the closing of his letter to Philemon. So that rift has apparently been healed. Then we hear even more, now approximately 20 years after Mark left Paul and Barnabas and returned home, Paul is again in prison, writing now what will turn out to be his last correspondence that we have, the book of 2 Timothy. He writes to, to young Pastor Timothy and gives him some final instructions or, or on standing firm and standing firm in his faith, standing firm in the work, uh, recommendations to him as he continues to pastor the church there. And at the end of that letter of 2 Timothy, along with several warnings and requests that he gives to Timothy, he urges Timothy, and this is 2 Timothy 4.9, he says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. And then he says, Luke alone is with me. And then he says this, get Mark to Timothy. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Apparently, in the 20-some-odd years since Pamphylia, Mark has matured, uh, undoubtedly done something to, to prove his worth to Paul, served Paul, helped Paul, such that Paul requests Timothy specifically to go and get Mark and bring him to be with Paul uh, in what Paul rightly reckons to be the, the last part of his life. So another question then is how does this qualify Mark to write one of the four official authoritative records on the life of our Savior? And the answer to that lies not only, uh, to some not primarily, in Mark's relationship to Paul, but his relationship to another apostle, the, the leader of the apostles, his relationship 
with Peter, the one who was miraculously freed from prison while the church prayed at Mark's mother's home, the one who, after serving in Rome for several years himself, uh, included Mark in the letter that he wrote from there. So Mark was with Peter in Rome serving. And in fact, Peter not only included Mark in his closing greetings of 1 Peter, but he did so by referring to Mark as my son, Mark. Uh, My son in the faith, the same type of language that Paul used in regards to Timothy. And it is and has basically always been commonly accepted within the church that Peter, and especially Peter's preaching, is the primary source for what Mark includes in his gospel concerning the ministry of Jesus. The structure of Mark's gospel, the things he includes, the way that he he lays it out, is not strictly chronological, but it follows in, in many ways Peter's relating of the events in his preaching in the book of Acts. And then as an additional support of Mark's authorship of the gospel and the fact that he was giving to us in his gospel in many ways sort of the gospel according to Peter, we point and the church points to the apostolic church fathers, men who lived in the the first half of the second century, the second half of the first century, many of whom personally knew one or more of the apostles. They were all unanimous uh, in attributing the second gospel to Mark and noting that the Apostle Peter was his primary source. One of them, uh, perhaps the most prominent and the most important, was a man named Papias. He lived from 70 A.D. to 163 A.D., so right, right up against the time of the Apostles. And he wrote this. He said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered not indeed in order of the, same, of the things said or done by the Lord. For Mark had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in thus writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention to leave out nothing of what he had heard and make no false statements in them. So, Papias is saying that it was known during his time that Mark wrote the second gospel and that Mark's source for the material in the second gospel was primarily Peter's preaching, probably as he served with Peter in the city of Rome. And that's important Uh, In fact, with the the requirement that any New Testament book be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, it's practically impossible that the church would have received Mark's gospel as authentic, as canonical, if it did not have um, the imprimatur, the, the sanction of recording the teaching of the apostle Peter. If it was just Mark on his own writing these things down, since Mark was not an apostle, the book would likely have not been recognized as part of the canon of the New Testament. But because of the, the uh, 
the surety of Mark's relationship with Peter and that he wrote what Peter had said, the book is recognized as part of the New Testament canon. The gospel is technically, the the writing here, Mark's gospel, technically is anonymous. But so are the other three gospels. None of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John sign their, their gospel and say, here's who wrote this. Um, the, the titles that we have on the Gospels, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John, those are not, they're, they're, while they're technically anonymous, those titles were associated with the Gospels very, very, very early. So the church, all along, there's not been any doubt that Mark wrote this gospel and that Mark used Peter as his primary source. Now, before we move on from this idea of of who Mark is and how he come to write this and what we know about him, there's one other place in in the New Testament where it is generally understood that we meet John Mark, though, of course, again, he's not named. Turn back to the Gospel of Mark and to the end of chapter 14. So Jesus has had his his last supper with the disciples, and he has left. They have sung a hymn and went out, and they have crossed the valley. They have come to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus has been then betrayed and, well, we'll pick it up in verse 48 in the Garden of Gethsemane there. Uh, Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, that is to the guards, the soldiers that had come to arrest him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now that's a bizarre little couple of verses. Who is this mysterious young man? Well, most scholars agree that this is the author himself. We can't be certain, but it... It makes sense. Why, why, why do people believe that this is Mark? Well, this is a very short account. It's only found in Mark. It's not found in Matthew or Luke or John. They, they don't include it. They apparently didn't find it, uh, find a reason to duplicate that event in their records like they do most of what Mark uh, speaks of. And it's hard to imagine why this would have been included if this is not the author himself that is being spoken of. If it is him, it serves to show his, his personal connection, that he had followed them. Uh, it also speaks not very um, nicely about him since he ran away, but so would the rest of the disciples. Uh, but it shows his personal connection to the story that he is telling of this critical event in the life of Christ. And much like John in his gospel, Mark never names himself. He doesn't identify this young man. 
Now, Mark was a young man. And as mentioned earlier, it's possible that the home in which Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated the Passover and the Lord's Supper was Mark's mother's house. And if so, it would fit a reasonable story that Mark was there, perhaps Mark was asleep or something when Jesus and his group finally left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, or perhaps after they had left, the, the Roman soldiers, perhaps coming back to the house, this is also speculation, perhaps they came to the house first to see if Jesus was still there. Um, he perhaps is woken up, throws on a, a, a robe, um, throws a, his sheet across him, whatever was covering his bed, and runs off to try to go and warn Jesus and the disciples. Uh, regardless, uh, he gets there, and this happens, and most scholars agree that there, this has to be Mark, or there would be no reason for it to even be here. It doesn't add much to the story. It adds some. We can learn things from it. When we get there, we'll see what those are. Um, but we can't be certain, but it appears, again, to most scholars, that this is Mark's own record of his own connection to the events of that night. So that's what we know about Mark both what we are sure of and what we're not so sure of, but what seems to fit. John Mark, a a young man who had his faults, but by God's grace in his life overcame those and became a man useful to the work of the church, became useful to the two preeminent apostles of the church, to Paul and to Peter, and especially gives to us his inspired record of the preaching of the Apostle Peter. Let's remember as we, as we read that quote from Papias and talks about how he recorded what he remembered and, and, not, and Peter didn't put them in a particular order and so Mark didn't either. And There's all these things. We always have to remember the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is not just some haphazard a collection of events. This is guided by the Spirit himself to give to us this unique viewpoint of the work of Christ. And as we talk about it being a unique viewpoint in Mark's particular viewpoint, let's ask our final question this morning in our first look at this gospel, our overview this morning, and that is what is Mark saying? The book was written, as I mentioned earlier, from Rome while Mark was laboring there. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter references Mark being there with him in Rome. And he is there either, and he writes this, this gospel, either during the final years or perhaps just after the martyrdom of Peter. And a combination of external evidence and internal investigation here, which we have to go through very often to sort of date these books because they don't have a date written on them. Uh, But a combination of of all of the ways to look at this give us a date of the writing of this gospel probably in the later years uh, of the 60s. 60s A.D., not 1960s. (laughs) Who was his original audience? It's often helpful to know who someone's writing to. We've seen that in the epistles. We saw that in the the epistle to the Romans, for example. Um, 
I mentioned that Mark wrote the gospel from Rome, and it's also probable that he wrote it for the church at Rome. During this time, the church in Rome was undergoing the persecution of the Emperor Nero. And so it was likely that this was given to encourage them with the, the news of the, the good news of the ministry of Christ. Um, so it was written for the church there, or more accurately, for the churches there, Rome being such a big place, there would certainly be uh, many homes where Christians would gather. Specifically, it's clear that Mark is focusing, that he's writing his message here to Gentile readers in the church at Rome. Now, how do we know that? Well, a few different ways. First of all, is that he, I mentioned that Matthew quotes very, um, very much from the Old Testament, and that lets us know that he's writing to a, a Jewish audience because they would know all of those prophecies that he sees as fulfilled in Christ. Well, in Mark's gospel, Mark quotes very um, rarely, very infrequently from the Old Testament which would fit with a Jewish or a Gentile readership because they would not know all of those. So that's one way that we know. It would be, they would be less familiar with those, and there aren't as many quotes uh, from the Old Testament. Secondly, as you read the record of the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that Mark, and we'll see this as we go through it, Mark explains a lot of Jewish customs that would be unfamiliar to, to Gentile readers but would be already known by Jewish readers. Uh, hand-washing practices. He explains those. Uh, the end-time view of the Sadducees. He's, he lays that out specifically. Passover practices. Uh, a lot of these things, Mark explains them in his gospel, and we'll see that. He also um, translates Hebrew or Aramaic phrases, uh, which Hebrew readers would not require to have translated, but Mark translates them. I'll just give you one example here. In Mark 5.41, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, we read there that, that Jesus says to her, Talitha kumi. And then Mark writes, and that, that's, a, that's an Aramaic expression, uh, which a Hebrew would understand. But then he goes on and says, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So those are the types of things that point us to a Gentile readership, a Gentile audience originally. So Mark wrote this gospel to present the person and the mission of Jesus Christ for Roman Christians who were at that time undergoing persecution from Nero. What are the characteristics of this gospel? We'll see them as we go through again. But first and most noticeably, I mentioned this at the beginning, you know it if you've looked at your Bibles at all, that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. He includes in it fewer accounts of Jesus' life, but he tends to treat those few events more, uh, more fully than the other Gospel writers do. Secondly, we will note that Mark... Remember, having gotten his, his source, at least primarily from Peter's preaching, uh, he writes in a way that reflects how people speak. His, his writing is, uses very common uh, Greek. We won't see that because we're dealing with a translation. But it's very readable. It's also very vivid. It's very descriptive. We will see that. 
And that comes also from the way that people speak and the way Peter would explain things. And he was very vivid in his description. And uh, Mark also scatters several terms for astonishment and amazement throughout the gospel as people respond to these things and as he explains them. So those are all true characteristics of Mark's gospel. But perhaps the, the characteristic, the most characteristic thing of the way Mark presents his record of Christ's life is its pacing. You know how novels or, or short stories will have pacing in them. They'll either the action will move fast, the action will move slow. Well, Mark's gospel is to change the metaphor a little, Mark's gospel is like watching a highlight reel. Uh, He quickly and constantly moves from one story to the next. He very often is beginning sentences with the word and that keeps things moving along very quickly. And of course you may be familiar with this fact that one of the key words in Mark's gospel is the word immediately. It occurs 41 times in the gospel. And it gives us this sort of highlight reel pacing. This happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately Jesus went there, and immediately this happened, and that happened. So it keeps things moving very quickly. And if you just sit down and read the gospel of Mark, you'll see that. Uh, Perhaps will not be as evident as we take it little chunks at a time. But uh, I encourage you, as we get ready to work through the Gospel of Mark, to read through it. It's, it's not that long. Uh, you can read through it, and then you'll, you'll pick that up. Along with this, he relatively rarely gives details about places or time. Again, contributing to that sort of highlight reel kind of feel. Uh, just clips of the ministry of Jesus that are given as he heard them from Peter as Peter preached there in Rome. But of course, the focus of Mark's gospel is the gospel. The focus of Mark's gospel is the person and the work of Christ. In Mark's gospel, as we would expect, Jesus is central. Of all of the little vignettes, the pericopes, the sections in in Mark's gospel, all but two of them specifically are related to Jesus. And those two are related to John the Baptist, which is related to Jesus. In Mark's gospel, we will see Jesus of Nazareth, particularly as he is presented as a man on a mission. uh, Which, of course, he literally is. A mission from God to save sinners, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus is proclaimed very much by what he does. Mark's focus is more not on what Jesus says, but on what Jesus does. He's presented in all of his humanness, never forgetting that he is also the divine Son of God, and that as such, his divine authority is a major theme in the book of Mark. As his mission, or as is his mission as the suffering servant of God. His divine sonship will be front and center in Mark's gospel. Jesus is presented without apology as the divine son of God. And throughout the book we will explore the themes of what it means to be a disciple of Christ and of living a life of faith. 
And of course, we'll define those more as we come across them in the narrative of Mark's gospel. A final note is that is the structure of Mark's gospel. And it's very simple. It's broken down into two sections, uh, two parts, two, two acts. In the first section, which runs from the beginning of the gospel through the middle of chapter 8, the focus is on Jesus' ministry, particularly in the northern part of Israel, in the area of Galilee. And then the second half begins in the middle of chapter 8 with Peter's great confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And from there on to the end of the book, Mark focuses on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem where he will be first proclaimed as the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord but will eventually be arrested, crucified, and it concludes with the announcement of his resurrection. But he begins with one of those passages that have to do with someone other than Jesus. He begins with the work of the forerunner, the one who was promised to come before the Christ and to prepare the way for him. And we'll look at that beginning next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the the variety of different ways that you, you give to us the, the record of Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. We thank you uh, for particularly this book that we are going to be studying. We thank you for, uh, for Mark and for the fact that you used him so mightily, Lord, in, in writing this gospel. We pray that you'd help us to, to come to it humbly, uh, to come to it expectantly, Lord, as we look forward to, to seeing Christ, to being with Christ as he works, uh, as he works while he was here, Lord, as he works to, to make known the greatness of your kingdom and the way of entering that kingdom. We pray that you bless us as we begin this journey through this book, and we ask it in his name. Amen.